Welcome to VBAC Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after cesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own VBAC journeys, and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph, and this is VBAC Birth Stories. Hi everyone, in today's episode we meet Stephanie, who has had a triumphant, unmedicated VBAC with her twin daughters about two years after having an emergency caesarean with her son. The day before Stephanie's son's due date, her father sadly passed away, leading her to pursue an induction in an effort to be present for the funeral. Unfortunately, she didn't get the natural birth she had hoped for. She eventually agreed to an epidural and despite reaching 10 centimetres dilation, and pushing, she was told she was going to be taken into theatre. Stephanie knew even before she fell pregnant that she wanted another chance at getting the natural birth she had always wanted and planned to have a VBAC at home with a private midwife. That is, until she found out she was pregnant with twins. Stephanie's determination to have an unmedicated birth in hospital was not wavered, but it was challenged. Listen to how she ensured she gave herself the best chance of getting the birth she wanted and how she overcame obstacles that stood in her way in this inspiring episode. Thanks, Stephanie, for joining us. Could you please start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Current time, I'm 26, live alone. I am a disability support worker. I have the three kids. The oldest is six and the twins are coming up on four. So the oldest is born and then twin girls. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about your ideas around childbirth around the time of falling pregnant, I guess? So I always wanted to be a mum and like had the dream of. And when that happened, I still had that kind of mindset with childbirth that was really like, um, just just go with it. Just go with it. I didn't I didn't want a cesarean at all. I really wanted a natural birth. I didn't want yeah. an epidural or any of that. I was absolutely yeah. terrified of needing. I had never had a stay in hospital. My partner at the time and my mum mm. were really um, didn't understand why I wouldn't want an epidural. So my mum had two C sections, no labour. So she didn't understand. She was like, Why wouldn't you get pain relief? I don't want to see you in pain. And, and same with the partner. He didn't um, he didn't understand, but he was trying to be supportive. Basically, in my mind, I wanted to do everything to avoid it, but I just didn't do any sort of research or anything. I, in my mind, it was it was you avoid it by just not having one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess then, leading up to your first birth, can you tell us about uh, what happened? I was really really scared yeah. in the lead up to the birth and and the midwives at the hospital weren't really that helpful. I was, I just turned 20 before I had Mm. him. One of the midwives there was, um, she she was really quite condescending towards me, I think with Mm. my age and stuff. And she was sort of trying to push me to go do like the childbirth classes. And Mm. partially I, I did know quite a bit about childbirth, but I didn't know enough. So, I, and I also worked when those were on. So she was really kind of nasty to me about that and, 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 and wasn't really supportive or teaching me anything. She was like, you need to go to these classes. And I was like, well, I'm working. I can't. Mm. I cried a lot in the lead up and 
then there was the scans and things where they were saying that he was really big and mm. and then all my friends were like, oh, you might not be able to have him naturally and, oh, it's going to hurt so much and just all of that fear talk that people were putting into me instead of support and, like, lifting me up. Um, my dad was very sick and he passed away three days before Lucas, my eldest, was born. Oh, um, sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So that was the day... Before my due date, I was really uncomfortable, really massive because I'm so short. And I had this this idea in my head. I spoke through that sort of traumatic event. I wasn't thinking real straight, but I thought I need, I need to be induced was my thought. I need to be induced so that I don't miss the funeral, which I look back on that and I'm like, wow, okay, that was a bit of a weird train of thought, but I can see where I was coming from. Mm, yes. But my sort of thoughts were if I get induced now and I have to have a cesarean, then I will be out of hospital before the funeral. Whereas if I go into labor and I have to have a cesarean, I might still be in hospital or I might go into labor when the, when the funeral is and just do things that to me now looking back on it seems silly, but it's hard at the time. And yeah. 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 So that he, he passed on the Tuesday, due date was the Wednesday. And then on the Thursday I had an appointment at the hospital. So I went in there and I said, will you induce me? And they kind of were like, oh, you know, we'll check you and we'll see if you're favorable for induction. And um, they didn't really give me any risk talk, just sort of, they weren't really sure if they wanted to do it because it wasn't a medical reason, mm. uh, but they, understood, they were understanding and sensitive of the situation. So this, this doctor gave me an internal exam, which was like the most excruciating thing in my life and said, you are completely closed, posterior, you're not favourable for induction at all. So he called the birth suite and the birth suite were like, yeah, no, we'll, we'll give it a go, we'll do it. Go home, pack a bag, come back. So I did that and probably about four o'clock in the afternoon, they, they used the tape on my cervix then took me to the um, maternity ward rather than the birth suite to just chill out there overnight. They said, you know, this is going to take a long time. It probably won't even work. And, um, mm. you know, we'll, we'll check you in the morning. And if you're a couple of centimetres dilated, we'll break your waters and get things going. Mm. So a couple of hours later, I think I'd had a bit of a nap and I was in increasing pain. And so one of the midwives came in and, and I said, can I get like some Panadol or something? And she was like, what's going on? And I, I told her. And so she stood there and she felt my stomach and she goes, I'm just going to go and get a monitor. She came back with the continuous monitoring mm. to check on things. And she said, your uterus is being overstimulated. We need to get this tape out like now. And mm. so between the time where she said that and when they took me to the birth suite to actually take it out, I was, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> um, oh. It was like, I, I didn't experience pain like that in, in my vaginal birth that I actually had. It was horrendous and I was vomiting. And I think when they took it out, they said that I was like two centimeters or something. So they told me, oh, it's mm. not doing anything. We need to take it out. But it actually had. Mm. And they said, you know, you wanted to break your waters now. And I said no, can I just have some time to settle down? I think they'd already given me some morphine or something. And so I hopped in the bath and let things settle for quite a few hours. I don't, I don't know how long it was. And I had mm. gas and I was really high. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> things settled down. I was still contracting, but nowhere near as much as I was. And then the midwives kind of came in and said, 
you know, you need to get out of the bath. And I was like, why? I don't want to leave this bath. The painkillers had worn off. I could feel things, but I was coping. And they said, oh, no, your contractions have died down. You're not progressing. We need to get you out of the bath. We need to get you an epidural. We need to break your waters and get things going. You know, it's died down. And I was like, oh, well, okay. But with all the fear talk that people had put into me and that the midwives were talking into me at the time, they were saying, you know, you're not going to be able to handle it once we break your waters. So you need this epidural because you need to rest. And so I agreed to the epidural after a lot of sort of hassling me. And then they broke my waters. And when they broke my waters, they said, oh, you're six centimetres dilated. So I had progressed. Mm, yeah. Probably unnecessary. And then overnight it died off, stopped progressing, stayed at six centimetres and goes to the group. And then they ramped that up. They said, oh, you know, you're nine centimetres, et cetera, et cetera, leave you a bit. Oh, you're 10 centimetres, but we're going to leave you a bit for the contractions to push baby down. And then we'll start pushing. And by the time they said, let's push, I could feel the pressure, even though I had the epidural. It wasn't painful, but I felt pressure. And so I was pushing, but I didn't really know what I was doing at all. I think by this stage, it was probably about four o'clock in the afternoon on the Friday. Then someone checked again and said, oh, you've got a cervical lip. And then someone else checked again. And it's, it's a bit of a blur. I don't really remember. His heart rate was dropping. Yeah. At the time, I didn't know that it was recovering but they were telling me, oh, his heart rate's dropping, it's an emergency, we're pushing this button and you're going into surgery, basically. It all happened really quickly. Looking back on that, I didn't, I wasn't pushing properly. I had no idea what I was doing. And, you know, there was no suggestion to change position to better baby's mm. heart rate mm. or any of those things. The notes that I've looked at since then, because I, I got my birth notes, they're very confusing because, yeah, his heart rate mm. was recovering fine. It wasn't an emergency for him. It was 4.40 yeah. on a Friday afternoon, really. And I was taking too long, I think, for them. The notes, though, they say that they say failure to progress at nine centimeters. And I'm like, yeah. what? <laughs> I was, I was um, pen and pushing. Um, yeah. So there was that issue, though, that they were confused about or going on about. So there was that. And then, yeah, it was born by C section. I made the funeral, very drugged up, don't remember any of it. Um, and, and that recovery sucked and that sort of first few months with Lucas really sucked, honestly. And I suppose because you had the grief that you were dealing with on top of becoming a mother for the first time. So you had the grief and then the birth and everything that went on there. And then the aftermath of postnatal that you had to deal with. So Lucas was a challenging baby. I, we didn't breastfeed for long. He had tongue ties and intolerances and he just, he pretty much screamed for the first month, five months of his life. So I, I didn't actually get too much of a chance to grieve about my dad. I was too busy trying to have that loving relationship that everyone has with their, with their first baby. Yeah. Back to sort of Lucas's birth and, and the cesarean and all of that. At the time and then immediately afterwards, how were you feeling? What were the thoughts going through your mind um, when you were taken into emergency and you gave birth to him and all of that? So I was really scared when it was all happening. I didn't know what was happening. You know, they're topping up the epidural and and I didn't know where, where my partner was and, like, he was just putting scrubs on and waiting because they, they, get, they get him to wait outside until I was sort of in the room ready to go 
Um, so I was, I just kept asking, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? I was, I was freaking out. I felt really alone. I felt like I didn't know what was going on during the cesarean. I just felt so sick. So sick. Mm. Um, I don't have a great memory of it. I don't remember being too scared while we were doing the surgery. I was actually kind of like, Oh, this isn't so bad. But Mm. afterwards I really felt like a bit of a failure. I know that's not (laughs) accurate, but I felt as though I was less of a woman and that my body didn't work. And I justified it a lot by the things that they were telling me, like they were saying, oh, he was way too big to fit anyway. And, and, you know, he never would have fit regardless. You know, we could have tried longer. He wouldn't have fit. And just, just things like, like that. So I felt like my body wasn't, uh, I don't have the word, you know, I I just felt felt like my body had failed as a woman because it's something that, you're supposed to be able to do and it, it didn't I in that moment before I had the sort of overview of it that I have now at that time I felt like I wasn't good enough and that it failed me basically yeah I think a, a lot of women that go in um, for emergency cesareans or in that situation that you described yeah I think they really share those feelings I think it's a very common common sort of thing that that you to feel um rightly or wrongly yeah as you say it is just a natural reaction that you have to the situation yeah so like I'm these days I'm telling women like you're not any less and you know you Mm. did a great job and but I didn't feel that in that moment I felt I felt really worthless at the time with regards to your sort of recovery you were saying you didn't have much time to grieve did you process that later down the track after he was a bit older did you have time to kind of reflect on everything that had happened it it came and went in waves there was times where I like cried about it and I remember there was a time when Lucas was a few weeks old I, I I went out for half an hour and just sat in my car and cried but I didn't really process a lot of the grief of things that had happened in my life until about just a bit over a year ago when some some really big things went down in my life and everything hit at once. Sure. Mm-hmm. And with the regards to what the hospital, they obviously they gave you your notes, did they tell you at that time about implications for future pregnancies uh, in particular? Did they mention VBAC? What did they tell you in that regard? I... Honestly, don't remember. I, they didn't actually give me my notes until a few years later when I requested them. But they, I think someone said, well, I think one of the midwives said to me that, you know, you could try for a VBAC in the future. But I think the biggest thing that was that they were kind of saying, oh, you know, he was too big to fit and yada, yada, yada. So even though they said, oh, you could try again, it, it didn't didn't feel like I could definitely try again because they were saying basically that my body couldn't have handled this big baby I had. How, how, when you say he was a big baby, how large was he? Uh, 4.1 something kilos. Yeah. I, I'm not a big like person. I'm five foot flat. So yeah. when I didn't know that that's perfectly fine at the time, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'm just too small. Maybe, maybe mm. my partner just made like really big babies <laughs> because he was yeah. a really big baby too. Yeah. Uh, so when you fell pregnant again with with twins, um, yeah, when did you find out, and and what was your reaction? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll give a bit of a backstory there. In between having Lucas, the eldest, and falling pregnant with the twins, I met Hannah Madden. I don't know if you've seen her around in the group. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's one of my best friends oh, these lovely. days. We, we talk when we can, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I met her and she taught me a lot. I had a friend, she was the doula for that birth. So we were sort of, I was, I was a support person. So I learned a lot from Hannah and I kind of started thinking, oh, oh, and these things started clicking about my birth. So I just, I just learned heaps. And then I decided that I wanted a home birth for my VBAC. And I decided I wanted Mayette Pearson, the private midwife. And like I, I was dead set. I had a meeting with Mayette before I even fell pregnant, went through my birth notes, discussed everything that happened, discussed future birth. So I was wow, really so prepared. So this was something that even before you knew you were having twins, you you had this in your mind and you were starting to already research. Yeah. I, and, and that was one of the th- reasons I wanted another child was I wanted another opportunity. I wanted to try again. So because Lucas was so hard, my partner was at, at, for a long time there really dead set against having more kids. Mm. <laughs> but um, I was like, we just need to have one more. I just need one more. I want to breastfeed again. I want to, I want to try to birth again. I want to, I want to try and do it all again. He eventually agreed to one more <laughs> and I fell pregnant. I contacted Mayette and I told her, I'm pregnant, let's book in our home birth. And then when I went in for the first scan, uh, I would have been five or six weeks pregnant. And I had never had an internal scan before. So she's doing the external scan like I was used to and mm. She's looking around and I'm like, oh, little baby, you know, and she goes, I'm just going to need to do an internal scan. And I was like, oh, okay. that's." (laughs) (laughs) So she does this internal scan and I'm there alone. I didn't have my partner with me. He was working Mm. and I didn't have anyone with me because you go to a dating scan and there's not a whole lot to see. And she goes, you know, there's your baby and, you know, there's the heartbeat. And and she goes, and there's your other baby. Actually, I don't I was, I just think the first words that came out of my mouth were F-U-C-K and yeah. there goes my home birth. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I knew from that moment that I wasn't going to home birth because it, a home birth in itself, fair enough, a home birth VBAC I had already come to terms with. But as far as VBACing twins at home, I knew that with the politics around birth and stuff, I would be putting Mayette in a bit of hot water yeah. if I pushed her to do that with me. Now, she, mm. she fully thought I could have done it, and if we had accidentally done it, she would have been prepared. But it, it wasn't the plan, no. So how, did, that, your, how did your plans go from there? So you knew now that a home birth is probably not going to be a reality for you. How did you approach the, the planning for the birth of your twins? Yeah, so the first thing I did was text Hannah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, yeah, I messaged her. We had a bit of a laugh about it. And then I got out, cried my way home and called me it. And she said, okay, all right, well, let's go to my chosen hospital because they're good with twins, they're good with feedback, and they're good with breach. Awesome. Um, so they really sort of moved ahead. They were retraining their teams to be able to handle breach because as we know now it's not necessarily the best thing to do a cesarean for that mm-hmm. and so that seemed like it covered all the bases I wasn't happy about it I was really scared of the hospital with mm-hmm. obviously the past experience but that meant that Mayette the midwife she could no longer she doesn't have birthing rights there so mm-hmm. 
that meant that while we were laboring at home, she was my midwife. Mm. Once we transferred to the hospital, she was basically more of a doula role. I also was obviously planning to have Hannah there. Hannah was there. And I had a photographer as well. I had Emma from Emma Jean Photography. So we just we just planned around that and, and there was a lot of reassurance from Mayette that this was not going to derail everything. Mm. But just the whole idea, you know, switching from the idea of basically birthing almost alone at home with everything calm and beautiful to thinking, oh, my God, they are going to turn this into so much of an emergency. It's not funny. There is going to be doctors everywhere looking at me. And, and I just I was really, really uncomfortable with, that so mm. I made a point I made a point of sort of trying to make it as calm as possible when when the time came I so I booked in at the hospital I had my first appointment at the hospital and I said I'm gonna be back and she said oh I don't know if they'll let you do that and I said well you better find someone who will mm. <laughs> and, and this is an obstetrician or a midwife that you're speaking to at the hospital um, this was just one of the generalized midwives there. So they've got a few like teams, like the midwifery group practice teams, mm. and then they've got, you know, the random ones. So this was one of the, just, just the ones that you see when you're not in a team and, yes. and and all of that. After that appointment, I spoke to someone else who was going through the MGP and she said, I'll, I'll talk to my midwife, I'll, you know, I'll talk to them and see if we can get you on the team. So she gave me her number, I called her, and she was actually the head of this midwifery group practice. And she has a special interest in VBACs, in twin, and in breech. Wow, <laughs> so, that's amazing. Yeah. And although I didn't end up having breech babies, it was yeah. just that peace of mind knowing that she was going to support me. And so she was really, really keen to have me on board. So I got into this midwifery group practice, which felt like the holy grail. Yes. They weren't overly happy with me sort of like I had shared care with Mayette and the hospital mm. so they were like oh you know you can't do that and I was like I can do whatever I want <laughs> so <laughs> I would I would have like one appointment at the hospital and then I would see Mayette and then I would like have my other appointment at the hospital I kind of stretched out the hospital and, and Mayette a bit they made me see an obstetrician a couple of times throughout the pregnancy mm. and that part was where it was just not fun yeah, so what happened there with the obstetrician? I imagine where you met with some kind of resistance there or? Yeah, quite a bit. She mm. she wasn't going to say, no, you can't have a VBAC with twins. But, I, mm. you know, she wasn't comfortable. She said, all right, okay, well, if you, if you set on doing this, we'll do this. Then it was just followed by, okay, well, you're going to need an epidural. And I just looked her in the face and said, um, that's, that's mighty counterproductive, don't you think? Mm. And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm trying to have a vaginal birth and having an epidural increases the rate of cesareans. And she goes, oh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't increase, it doesn't increase your risk of having a cesarean. And I laughed in her face. Um, <laughs> she, mm. didn't, she didn't like me very much because mm. I, I was really strong in the moment. But after these appointments, I would, I would sit in my car and cry. But I, I would say, you know, well, give me the research then if you're telling me it doesn't, doesn't affect it. And she, she, she never could. It sounds like you had your support still from um, Hannah and Mayette, though yeah. you had them sort of bolstering you at the other side when you would yeah. 
kind of exactly. be feeling that way. Yeah, absolutely. Every time I questioned myself or I worried or I went to these appointments with this obstetrician, I would come out and I would call my ad or text Hannah or call Hannah and they would reassure me and they would send me information like studies and things to to back it up. But they never said to me, this is what you need to do. They always said, look, it's your choice, but here's the research to support you, you know. They made me feel confident in myself by by giving me the research to back up what I really felt in my heart. Yeah. And that was that was just a huge thing to be able to call on them all the time. There was, there was one time I called May out at two o'clock in the morning because I was bleeding. <laughs> and um admittedly that was after having a bit of adult time. But <laughs> <laughs> and you and you were okay she reassured you yeah. Or? <laughs> yeah it was fine she reassured me and and told me to watch it and then I went back to sleep and she messaged me at like five o'clock in the morning to make sure I was okay and she really put in a lot of effort and put up with me calling her at weird hours of the night if I was if I was worrying or any time I needed her she was there just like like a guardian motherly figure mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow. Yes. yes. She, she's fantastic. All these appointments that you had at the hospital, did they automatically scan you because you were having twins? Yeah. So there was heaps of scans. There was, there was a lot of, you know, the, the growth scans and stuff throughout. I think that was four weekly and then fortnightly after, tw- after 20 weeks, four weekly, and then it went to fortnightly. And then in the actual office, they often just did a bedside scan. I don't know why, but... At the time, I was, I was pretty happy just to see the babies. And also, I felt like having those scans really helped me. I wouldn't have had them with a singleton pregnancy mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have agreed to later on scans with a singleton pregnancy because I didn't want anything to be sort of used against me big baby-wise. Mm-hmm. But with, with the twins and the decisions that I was making, I really felt at the time that it reassured me in the decisions I was making because they were growing really well. They were both on track you know no one was lagging behind and also the type of twins that I were having were the safest type of twins to be having a pregnancy with so um two amniotic sacs two placentas and I just looked at it like two different pregnancies at the same time rather than them sort of worrying about them stealing each other's goods and the positioning of babies, were they switching a lot or were they all sort of from a very early stage, one was head down or <laughs> what was that sort of like? All right. So from early on, so we've got baby A and baby B. So baby A is the one that's closest to the cervix and that was always the same. They didn't swap in that regard. So baby A was probably head down Pretty early on, by, by I think 20 or 24 weeks or something, she was head down. Baby B was a bit all over the place. She was breech and then she was transverse and then she was head down. And sort of towards the end, she was transverse and then sort of, actually, I think she was breech for a bit there just after 30 weeks. I remember when she actually flipped. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And she went sort of transverse, but but transverse head down sort of, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So she wasn't totally head down next to her sister, kind of like a yin-yang. She was sort of over the top with her head down, a bit like a, an L shape sort of. They were a bit concerned about what position she would end up in once baby A was out because she would have so much room to just party. 
they weren't concerned about because this was one of the things that I said early on about their positioning. I, I wanted to birth them regardless of position. The only concern that they had, which still kind of confuses me because I never really did a whole lot of research on it. I don't, I don't think it existed. But basically they were concerned if baby A was breech and baby B was head down because they had this idea that they would get a bit of a headlock with their chins and sort of prevent each other from coming out. I, I don't know if that would actually work, but apparently it's happened. I don't remember what my aunt said to me about that, but it was reassuring, whatever it was. Uh, and, and we didn't end up having that problem. So they were happy to birth if both were breech, if both were head down, if A was head down and B was breech, but they were more concerned if baby B, baby A was breech and baby B was head down. Got it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was all these different sort of ways that they could be, but there was only one way that they were concerned about, whereas a lot of other hospitals are concerned yes. about if the first baby is head down and the second baby is breached because they seem to think if you birthed a head down baby, mm. the, the breech one will get stuck. Sure. The risk of uterine rupture, were you ever concerned about the uterine rupture statistics that you'd heard about and read about and was any of that put on you during your pregnancy surprisingly i don't think that the doctors really brought up the uterine rupture thing much maybe maybe once or twice it was brought up but if it was i completely ignored it because i've actually in fact got the research in front of me right now that was the first thing i looked up when i found out that i was pregnant with twins and i knew that i was going to be back them the first thing i looked up was twin v-back uh, rupture rate or something like that and so the first one that came up was, was PubMed and there's like a study on here and it looks like it was done in 2005 maybe between the years of 1996 and 2000 but it was published in 2005. Mm. So it says the conclusion of this study that they've done says that women with twin gestations are less likely to attempt a VBAC but they are no more likely to fail a VBAC trial or experience a major morbid event compared with women of singleton gestations. In the results section, that also includes uterine rupture. So they're not more likely to just because they're having twins. So then take us to the end of this pregnancy and how you were feeling at the time um, and how you came ultimately to meet the twins. So there was a lot of really uncomfortable long scans. The last scan I had was at about 36 and a half weeks. And then the day after that, I had an appointment with this obstetrician. We were, you know, she just finished telling me that the scan was great and both babies are doing perfect, they're fine. And then she starts saying to me, so when you come in, we'll break your waters and, and we'll, we'll put a drip in. And I just said, hang, hang on a minute, what? Why is, why is anyone breaking my waters? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I thought at the time, I thought that she meant when I go into labour and I come in. And okay. she goes, oh, oh, you're almost 37 weeks and we induce twins at 37 weeks. And I just stood there and I said, thanks for asking, but no. (laughs) Um, Really, the research that's been done on on twins and and going term and things like that, a lot of the concern is for twins that share a placenta or share a placenta and an amniotic amniotic sac. But for for die-die twins, it's a little bit, sort of a gray zone they're not sure and I just I just like you just told me that they're doing fine so I'm gonna wait it out 
and she said, oh, you know, how long are you going to wait it out? When can we, when can we induce you? And I just said, we, we can talk about it if I get to 40 weeks. Mm. At that point, I wasn't really sure how long I wanted to go. I just wanted to push her off of that talk. I didn't want to mm. talk about it. It was really difficult for me at that appointment because I was so over it. I wanted it to be over. I wanted them to induce me. I wanted anything, but I knew that that wasn't going to get me the birth I wanted. Yeah. So I, I was, I had to be really, really strong in that moment where she was like dangling shiny things in front of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she said, Oh, can I give you a stretch and sweep? And I was like, no, you know, I don't want to, don't want to know if I'm dilated. I don't want to know any of that. And I don't want you to do a stretch and sweep. And as I was leaving that room, I, I had so much trouble getting up because I was huge and I was so uncomfortable. And she says, oh, you were right. And I said, I'm just uncomfortable. And she goes, well, I've tried to offer you things to help you, but you won't take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she was really like, yes, that I wouldn't accept her, her intervention. Mm-hmm. But the other thing she said to me when I declined that induction was, but how are we going to know if your babies are okay? You know, the placentas might fail after 37 weeks. How, how are we going to know? And I said, well, that's kind of your job. Um, so if you want to do more, more scans than you have been, if you want me to come in from extra monitoring every day, every second day, then that's fine with me. But I'm not getting an induction unless there's, you know, an A indication. reason, yeah. Yeah. If they want to monitor things more closely because they're concerned, that's fine. However, she didn't book in any extra monitoring or any extra scans. She just left it. So I got to 38 weeks on the Saturday. It was a beautiful day and I was still pregnant. And I was not happy. (laughs) (laughs) And I just accepted I was going to be pregnant forever. I had been complaining every day for the last few months. And that day I just went, nah, I'm just, I'm going to be pregnant forever, whatever. So partner was off helping his parents move and I put the eldest down for a nap and then I realised that I was leaking. It, it was like a bit of a gush. And I texted Hannah. I said, I said, I think my water's broken, but I'm too scared to get up. And she goes, what do you mean you think? Yeah, she's like, get up. <laughs> so thankfully I'm lazy and there was a towel sitting next to my bed because I'd had a shower and just left it there. Because I, as I got up, I shoved this towel between my legs and waddled to the ensuite, and it just gushed like oh. Hollywood style and just didn't stop. It was crazy. Kids asleep, partners out, and I, he came home with his brother <laughs> while I'm waddling around the house with a towel between my legs. <laughs> so, I don't know. They were standing up an Xbox or something, and then his brother left, and I thought, oh, God. I, I had called Mayette when I was sitting on the toilet with the waters broken before he got home. And she said, just, you know, you know, it could be a while before things get started. Just, you know, have a nap, get some rest. And I was like, but I just woke up from a nap and I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, But I myself was pretty prepared to wait quite a while before labor started because I just, I don't know what it's like. I know how it can be. And then the midwives at the hospital were happy to wait, you know, 48, 72 hours if, if need be before even considering an induction. So, yeah, that was really awesome. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't worried that I was on a timeline and I just sort of tried to go about things with this leaking, massive leaking waters. About four o'clock, I was having some food that he made me and I was contracting, I guess, at that stage, but it was more just like a constant sort of period pain. Mm-hmm. It, and it, I don't know, it didn't really have a pattern to it. I couldn't time it, but I was uncomfortable. 
then, you know, I think five o'clock, um, the eldest got picked up by grandma and um, she, he went there. And about six, I was kind of pondering around the house. Like I, I had this playlist that I wanted to play and I tried to do the music thing and that just pissed me off. So I turned it off. I couldn't handle the sound. And then, <laughs> yeah, partner was trying to play Xbox online and I said to him, can you can you get me the football and a towel and like put it on the on the football? And he goes, the football's there and the towel's there. And I was like, really? So I go, come on, (laughs) mate. (laughs) At this point, even in between contractions, I couldn't stand up straight. I was just really uncomfortable in between. And, um, yeah, he wasn't real helpful. Um, He actually wasn't there for the birth and that was the plan is that he was quite traumatised by the first birth so he didn't want to be there and I didn't want his traumatised energy there. Mm. Um, So... I sat down next to him while he was playing and I was just trying to focus on these contractions and sort of messaging my team. And um, it was at a point where he was carrying on about not being able to connect to Xbox Live and I just said, shut the F up, don't talk to me right now. That's when I just went, okay, I'm in labour and I need my team here now. So Emma was the first one who showed up, the photographer, and as soon as Emma showed up, um, partner went to his brother's house. So it was just me and Emma for a little while dimmed the lights and it was really good because she she is also a midwife so she sort of knows what I needed in that moment even though you know the doula and the midwife weren't there she wasn't just happy snapping she did take some photos but I I don't think I actually called the I think I maybe called the hospital at this point and told them that my waters had broken and she said oh usually we tell you to come straight in when that happens and and she goes but obviously you haven't so you don't want to I said no I don't that, but this wasn't my usual midwife I spoke to. It was just the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Um, someone what following happened. the usual protocol. And yeah, all of yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. What happens on these teams is basically you have the main one you see in pregnancy and then on the day you go into labour, you get whoever in that team is on and they're not even necessarily in the hospital. They're just on call. After Mayotte got there and I was just analysing everything, they were coming pretty hard and fast. I couldn't relax because I just kept thinking, I've got to make this trip to the hospital. Am I going to make it to the hospital? Because apparently twin births can happen very fast. I was just sort of freaking out and, and thinking in my head, like, what if I accidentally have them at home? May it will get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, as much as it was good having the team there at home for support, I didn't labor at home as long as I probably would have just because I was really like freaking out about the trip to the hospital. We made the trip. Don't really remember it, but I know it was uncomfortable. When we eventually got up to the birth suite and into the birth suite, I looked at the bed and I went, nope, I'm not going near that bed. And so I went and sat on the little like recliner couch thing they've got. And they did their usual sort of blood pressure checks and things like that. But what was really good was that the midwives already knew exactly what I did and didn't want. They knew that I didn't want a vaginal exam straight away. They, I basically said about that, I said, I don't want drugs or vaginal exams unless I ask for it. Mm. I think I got in the shower for a while and we filled up the bathtub and it, it did slow down when I got to the hospital quite a bit. I, I guess just the change in scenery and the anxiety that came with being in a hospital for me. But once I was in the bath and with the water and everyone's just really calm and quiet, the midwives left us alone. So it was just me, Mayette, Hannah and Emma. There was a moment there where the student obstetrician came in and said, oh, we want to put the continuous monitoring on you. And I said, no, I already said no to that when I was pregnant. Mm. Oh, oh, but how will we know if your babies are okay? I said, use a Doppler. 
But yeah. how will we know which baby is which? And I said, well, you figured it out all pregnancy. You'll be fine. Mm. <laughs> so then the actual obstetrician came in and spoke to me and I just said, look, I already told you no. So mm. they did that. That was annoying, but it didn't derail me too much because I, I already knew that it was probably going to happen. After that, they left us alone. Then my, my midwife from pregnancy, who wasn't on call, actually came in, especially for the birth. And that was just such a relief to see her face because I knew that she knew exactly what I wanted and didn't want and that she could sort of liaise with the hospital staff. She said, look, Steph, I know you really don't want a vaginal exam, but you've been here for uh, nearly four hours or three or four hours, whatever it was, and, and they're pushing me to, to do it. So I'm just asking you, can I do a vaginal exam? You can say no. That was just a huge difference from the other birth where they just did things and said, you need to do this, we need to do that. They didn't really ask me for permission previously. And so I said to her, I kind of looked at her and I was like, look, you can do it if I don't have to move. Were you in what? the bathtub at this point? Yeah. So I was in the corner of the <laughs> and she's looking at me and I'm like, you can't do it while I'm in the bath, can you? Because I just didn't want to get out of the bath. And she goes, oh, I can. I'm just left-handed. I just need you to shuffle over onto the other side. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's fine. So I shuffled over and she checked me and she's like, okay, you're five centimetres and there's just a bit on sort of one side, like her head's not coming down evenly. So, the, you know, the dilation wasn't quite even. Mm-hmm. And like the whole room kind of went silent and I was just really defeated because I thought that I was so much closer and I we yeah we're all pretty quiet for a minute there after she left and I said to the girls I said can someone get me the gas I want to get on my knees and I didn't want to get on my knees without the gas because every time I got on my knees it was really uncomfortable but I wanted to put that downward pressure on the cervix so they just went quiet. No one answered me. <laughs> and I was like, I know you can hear me. I want this gas. And they said, Steph, I don't think you can have it in the bath. I said, yes, you can. I did it with Lucas. I not get it. So they did go and get me the gas. As far as the gas goes, I think, to be honest, it helps more with remembering to breathe than anything else. I don't know how much longer it was. Time is a really funny thing when you're in labor. It just kind of gets away yes. from you. At some point I said, oh, okay, well, that's all right. I will go and get on this bed because I just want to lay down and snuggle up with a blanket. So I did go to the bed, but I made a point of lying on my side instead of my back this time. I laid there for quite a bit. I had the gas and I think I used it for a little while and then it just sort of became like a security blanket in my hand that I stopped sucking on and just had in my hand. They couldn't, they couldn't get it off me. They didn't turn it up or anything. It was pretty low, but honestly, they could have given it to me with nothing in it and I probably would have just taken it the same way. Like <laughs> It's almost a, a mental thing, isn't it? It's like a yeah, placebo yeah. effect or something like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it definitely gives you the head spins though. So, yeah, I was laying on my side. I think I was, I was getting pushy and some contractions and I said to the midwife, can you check me again? And she's like, how about we just give it another few contractions? I was thinking, I I want them to check me because if I'm not any further dilated, I want drugs. I want an epidural. I'm done. I want to go home. I'm done. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't going to verbalize it because honestly, it was just that sort of argument in my head going on. It's Um, that that point of transition where you're questioning 
then the decisions yeah. that you'd already made and, and doubts, doubting yeah. yourself and your body and going through all of that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But I didn't verbalize that out loud. I think because I, I knew I wasn't going to actually do it. Um, I, I was sort of daydreaming. I was, I was asleep in between contractions and I dreamed that I texted my partner to bring me an epidural. (laughs) 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 And I don't, I kind of look back on it and I'm like, how did I not realize I was in transition at that point? So yeah, they, they they refused to check me again straight away when I asked, they said, let's just give it a little while. And they, they put me off. I think, you know, they knew I was getting closer. I later found out from Hannah that they actually looked at the purple line on my butt yes. um, oh. and didn't tell me. <laughs> so they, they were sort of keeping an eye on those kind of things. So eventually I was, yeah, I was getting quite pushy and I was vaguely aware of it that I was pushing a little bit involuntarily, but not every contraction and not like a massive push or anything. It was just a, a different noise that I was making they did check me again and she's like you are 10 centimeters dilated there's just a bit of a cervical lip here but I had already spoken to her about the internals because they had been so traumatic for me in the past I had said to her you know if I tell you to stop you need to stop straight away and so I started having a contraction while her fingers were in in me and Mm. I said I said you know, I said, I'm having contraction and you just stop. And she's like, there's just, you know, she's like, you're fully dilated. There's just a cervical lip here. I just want to try and push it back over baby's head while you're having a contraction. Is that okay? And I was like, all right, fine. So she really, really made an effort of asking me things before doing them where previously I hadn't had that experience. People had just done it. So she did that. She got the cervical lip out of the way, which amazed me because in my head that was one of the big things with Lucas that had stopped me from birthing him and to think that someone could just push it over the baby's head was like really no one thought to do that last time after that I moved on to my my knees and I was getting a bit of a bozo on the back that was awesome but then the obstetricians came in and they, they said oh you know baby's heart rate's dropping we, we really want to put this continuous monitor on. And I was like, uh, I said, I knew it was dropping cause she was, you know, being pushed through the birth canal. And I just, mm. I said, look, you can put it on me if I don't have to move from the position that I'm in. I don't want to be laying on my back with this thing. So they did, they, they put it on and it actually ended up, even though it's something I didn't want in that moment, it ended up helping me because every time her heart rate dropped, I realized I was holding my breath. And every time I took a big deep breath, it would come back up again because I could hear it on the monitor. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that was another reminder for me to breathe. I really, I don't know how long I was pushing for. I moved onto my other side and they were kind of holding my legs up. And that's when I started pushing properly. And yeah, Abby was born at 3.45 in the morning. Did mm. they put Abby on your, on your chest? Is that what happened when, when she was born? Yeah. Yeah, so straight away she was up on my chest. That was one of the big things I had Beautiful. discussed before was being the first person to touch my baby, to hold my baby. So I touched her as she was coming out and I felt her head. Weirdest thing I've ever felt in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember much about like her actually coming out. I think I said to Hannah, I was like, oh, my God, it just keeps getting bigger. Because every time I thought I was at the point where, you know, you're at like the widest circle of the head and you can start coming down the other side, 
mm-hmm. I thought, I thought, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm there. And then it would just get bigger. And I was like, oh no, what's going on? The, the photos are really, really beautiful of that moment where you see her coming out. And then just this look of relief as she's on your chest that you seem to have yeah. in her face. That relief didn't last too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A short break between the contractions there. And what they did was um, a quick internal and a quick ultrasound just to yes. see what, um, what Izzy's position was, which was head down. But she, they said, oh, you know, she's head down, but she's still floating quite high up. And as the contractions sort of started to come back, the doctor said to me, you know, if you want to give a push for me, you just give a push. And I thought, I just want this to be over. So I didn't have the urge to push, but I did it anyway. And I gave just this one big push and as soon as I gave that one big push, she must have come down and hit that point where the the pushing reflex took over. So I'm holding Abby on my chest in one arm and pushing another baby out. <laughs> oh. And, and it, didn't, it didn't take long. They were 11 minutes apart. So I felt more pain pushing Izzy out in a way not, not because Abby had just come, but I think because Izzy's head was like wider at her, I don't even know the name of the bones of her head, but she was, she had like a wider head at one point And I really felt like I was going to tear. And I remember saying, Oh my God, I'm going to tear. I didn't tear. I grazed, but it was, you know, minor. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, the other thing when Izzy was coming to was she was coming so fast and it's funny when you know a lot about birth and then you're giving birth because you're analysing everything as you go. So I was thinking to myself, if she comes too fast, I will tear because, you know, sometimes with a bigger baby, you're less likely to tear because they sort of slowly stretch. Mm. and she was just flying out and I, I put my hand down there actually more to slow her down than, than to touch her or catch her or anything. I, I actually was just trying to slow it down and slowly sort of stretch myself over her head more than just letting her fly out the way she was. Yeah, so, so yeah, when she was born, they put her straight up on my chest um, and I had both babies on my chest. I hadn't been separated from Abby and I had Abby and Izzy there. They did both have nuchal cords, which I didn't know about until I saw that slideshow you mentioned because mm-hmm. no one said anything. It wasn't an issue. They came out with a cord around their neck. They unflipped it and handed me the baby before I even knew it was there. Wow. How yeah. did you feel when you had both of them on your chest? I, I think I was just in a bit of shock. But, like, when I see those photos, I remember that feeling of like the, the warm, squishy, wet baby on your chest mm-hmm. and just being amazed at their tiny little heads and that they were both there on me and I'd done it. It didn't, it didn't feel real for quite a while afterwards. It just was like, what, what have I done? I've, I did it. Amazing, Steph. Yeah, yeah. it's really, really incredible that you could go through that with not just one but two babies is a pretty... I think, yeah, just an incredible um, yeah, I think, achievement. I think I just think the biggest part of it was like everyone's like, oh, my God, you birthed two babies out of your vagina. But the biggest fight for me in all of it was throughout the pregnancy and, and just getting the birth that I wanted. Mm-hmm. The actual birthing of them was, was nowhere near as hard as people think. It actually just went so smoothly and awesome. So it's like... 
it's unfortunate that people have to fight so hard for something like mm. that, that it doesn't have to be hard. Yeah. Yes. And it sounded like you were bolstered by so many women around you. Yes, um, absolutely. And you've exactly. done that work <laughs> yourself as well. So it was a combination of having a fantastic support and also doing your own research and having having that strength of resolve to say, no, this is, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't always feel good doing that because, like, it's hard standing up to a doctor. So in the moment yes, I was yes. like, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm not doing that. But as soon as I left, I just broke. I was... Because, because the things that they say to you, you know, how are we going to know that your babies are okay? What if they die? The things that are said, you know, whether you know that it's right or wrong, it still upsets you. Yes. Yeah, very yeah. true. Oh, placentas. What happened with your oh. placentas? Hmm. Hmm. This is a question <laughs> I, I always forget. I do get this question because I've told this story at uni for Mayette, for her midwifery students. And this is the question I get every time about the placentas is does one come out before the next baby or do they come out together? You know, that's a question I get a lot. So basically it was baby, baby, placenta, placenta, because your body doesn't expel the placentas until after both babies are born. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be so good. Because if, if you had one come after the first baby, then the worry would be that the other one would detach because of those hormones. So they, they right. both come out together after. I was really not with it, but I do remember the first placenta came out and I think it was actually the second baby's placenta that came first and then the other placenta, it, it was just taking a little bit longer. They did do a little bit of cord traction, but nothing crazy, just sort of like just to check to see if it was right there and then it was right there, so they pulled it out. But the second one that hadn't come out yet, it, it took maybe a little while. I didn't want the injection at all. And apparently they started talking about it and getting it ready. And Mayette just said to them, it hasn't really been that long, has it? <laughs> so they, mm. they, you know, they waited on that. And I said, no, I don't want the needle. Like, so there was a moment there where I did have to speak up for myself and no, I don't want that. But it was good that I had those other support people there to remind me to do so because I wasn't listening to what the midwives were saying. And I, I feel like with the amount of doctors and midwives and students that were in the room for the birth, I, I was trying to shut them out. So it was good that I had the other people there to remind me what was going on. Yeah, and then babies stayed attached to their placentas as well. That was one thing I really pushed for was delayed cord clamping. So we actually mm-hmm. left them attached to their placentas for quite a while afterwards. I think in some of those photos you can see mm-hmm. the little kidney dishes being passed around so with the baby. beautiful. Yeah, yeah there's some beautiful yeah, photos really, in there. <laughs> really incredible yeah. shot of both of Steph's twins with their placentas still attached. It's really yeah. beautiful. And then I saw also that you were given the opportunity to cut the cord. Is that right? Yeah, I cut, I cut both the cords. My partner was there at that point. He had got there not too long after the birth. Things were still pretty messy when he got there. And he, <laughs> he was like, oh, there was so much blood. We left them attached until we had the opportunity to take that photo. And that was a couple of hours, actually. I got up and had a shower. And then I think after that was when I sat down and um, cut the cords. So because their dad had cut our eldest's cord, he said, you know, why don't you do these ones? So I did do these ones myself. Mm. Yeah, I, I did I did a lot of the twins myself and my own decisions more so. This time he, he kind of stepped back and just let me do things. 
because yeah. he didn't he didn't understand and he was really traumatized by the first one. But it sounds like there was support there from your network to to pursue the the twin birth vaginally and yeah and pursue the VBAC. It sounds like yeah that, yeah yeah that and that Facebook group, the VBAC Australia support group, is just yes. full of amazing. amazing people. And then there's birthing multiples naturally, which is also full of quite a few amazing women. For mm. anyone who's you know, trying to have a birth like I did to see those stories and go, it's actually more normal to birth twins than you would think. Sure. And uh, how did you feel physically and, and mentally after your cesarean compared to your VBAC? I, I felt heaps better after the, after the VBAC with the twins. I felt like all of my trauma from that first birth had really kind of melted away. I'd already worked through quite a bit of it. But just to know that my body was actually capable. So rather than, you know, going, I know my body should be capable and I know that, you know, if, if things had been done different with, with Lucas, it would probably be fine. To actually have done that and with twins was just the biggest feeling of like superhero. I thought, like, I felt like superwoman. <laughs> and you should feel yeah. that way. Yeah. It is an amazing yeah. achievement, an amazing thing to have done. Mm. Physically though? As much like I didn't, I didn't tear or any of that, but I think it was something to do with maybe carrying twins. But mm. for the first couple of days afterwards, like I, I think I went home the next day, but for the first few days after I got home, I just thought I should still be in hospital. I felt so bad. I couldn't stand up straight, but I could walk. I think at the time though, in my head, I was kind of going, oh man, this feels just as bad. But it really, it really wasn't. I think I was just over-traumatised again. <laughs> and the best part was it didn't actually last nearly as long as the C-section recovery. So I took a lot of heavy painkillers after the twins' birth just because of those after-pains. But I think it was maybe, I don't know, three or four days. And just after I started, the um, we, I, we had the placentas encapsulated by Hannah. Hannah did that for me. Oh, cool. Just, and once I got those, I think the day after I started taking those, I woke up and I went and did some washing and I did some dishes and I was like, oh my God, I feel great. And I just couldn't believe that I was up and walking about and doing housework, you know, less than a week after I'd given birth to twins. One of the main reasons I wanted to try that was because people had said for milk production, it was really good. And I, I didn't expect for it to actually lift my energy levels as much as it did. Overall, I wanted to know, were you happy with the way that the hospital supported you and the way that you were treated overall? Um, and if you weren't in any area, what, what are some suggestions you would make to the midwives or obstetricians there on how to change their processes? I was really, really happy with the midwifery group practice at the hospital. To have a person in my corner at the hospital was fantastic and I really, really admire those midwives in those teams. They're the ones who have to go into bat for the patients and it, they shouldn't have to. So I guess what I would say is that the obstetricians just really need to learn a more natural approach instead of seeing everything as an emergency and trying to medicalise everything before there's even a problem. Cool. I think what we might do is ask one final question. I think you do already talk a lot about this anyway throughout the interview, but maybe with one sum up. Uh, what yeah. advice would you give to mums who are pregnant or may fall pregnant with multiples and want to pursue a, a VBAC? 
research, support groups, finding a private midwife or a doula or both and, and just trusting, trusting that your body wouldn't have, that it, your body wouldn't make twins or one baby or, you know, your body's not going to make something that it can't birth. You just have to give your body the right circumstances to birth that baby. I wanted to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for coming on the show. And yeah, I just think what you've achieved is just so amazing and um, a really incredible feat, especially with all the obstacles that you described. I think, I think not, just, not just that it's inspiring for people that are having twins, but the amount of people that still struggle to get support for just a singleton VBAC, yes. it's inspiring for those people to look at my story and go, well, she did it with twins. So, you know, how bad could it really be? Thank you for listening to this VBAC story. If you like the show, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. If you would like to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for VBAC Birth Stories. If you have a question or you'd like to express interest in sharing your personal story, email us at vbackbirthstories at gmail.com. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.